if you live in a world that is constantly changing and that world expects that you are constantly trying new things and applying your knowledge in different ways in different industries with different people, you have to be able to learn those strategies. On this episode of Change the Narrative, we talk with educator and thought leader Saba Quidwai about what is probably the biggest obstacle we face when we try to innovate, fear. Listening to people look is a strange but telling activity. When I went to the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. to see the Obama portraits, I'd expected to hear gasps and other reactions to the artwork. Instead, I heard quiet contemplation. People might have been figuring out what to make of the lush foliage and bright flowers in President Obama's portrait, or the elegant geometry of Michelle Obama's. Maybe they're still surprised by the election of a black president. As I watched people looking and listened to their quiet, I had a realization. These portraits aren't just paintings of other people, they're mirrors. We see ourselves reflected in the work and our reactions to them tell us more about ourselves than they do about the subject of the painting. How we react to experiences and events in our lives function the same way. They reveal our personalities, what we expect from ourselves and others, and what our goals might be for the future. Whether we realize it or not, most of us default to a place of caution or fear, simply because we're wary of the unknown and how change often makes us feel uneasy. If I'm being completely honest with you, I've struggled to help other people shift their mindset and try new things. It's easy to dismiss cautiousness and to write off those who actively work against innovation. How we react to the portrait gallery of life can help us better understand how to move forward. If we truly believe in the need to evolve in our lives and workspaces, then we need to acknowledge that fear of change is real and work together to get past the psychological barriers we put in front of ourselves. Saba Quidwai wants to live in a world driven by empathy. In working with schools and organizations to reimagine teaching and learning in a mobile-driven world, the greatest lesson she's learned is that cultures of innovation begin with a culture of empathy. Sama's experience in education spans across K-12 and higher education. Her career began as a high school social science teacher, and over the years, she has led one-to-one -one iPad initiatives across K-12 and higher education institutions, notably Fairmont Private Schools and the University of Southern California. Saba is currently a Global Executive Doctor of Education student at the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California, where she is studying how design thinking in K-12 can help students thrive in the age of automation. Well, thanks for joining me, Saba. I really appreciate it and being on the show. And I don't know if I told you before, but you're sort of the inspiration for this podcast. Um, we were sitting around having dinner and talking about all kinds of great ideas. And you're like, well, why don't you just make a podcast? And you were the second person to say that, and I'm like, okay, now I need to do it. So thank you for that. You are welcome. Ideas are one thing, but your execution is another. So I'm excited to be here and excited for your show. Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this concept of innovation um, throughout the podcast. And you've worked as a high school teacher, and you've worked at USC's Keck School of Medicine, and now for a tech company. And I'm sort of wondering how you might define the term innovation, and if you think it means different things in each of those different contexts. So I think actually working through those different environments, I define innovation as empathy. 
And I know that sounds a little bit different, a little bit strange, right? We wouldn't really associate empathy always as being the definition of innovation. But I really learned this, especially at Keck, you know, because I was so outside my comfort zone. It was a medical school, it was higher education. I was a social science teacher who took geology as a science because she hated science that much. <laughs> um, and it was really, you know, and then I was also coming from the K-12 sector. And so it was really being in such an uncomfortable environment where they wanted to create a culture of change and they wanted to create a culture of innovation in medicine that I realized that cultures of innovation really begin with a culture of empathy. Because if we think of the idea of innovation as building better solutions for new requirements, we have to one, understand what are the new requirements that we are trying to design for, but more importantly, who are the people that are going to be in those new environments that are going to have to tackle different challenges and be able to like embrace and recognize opportunities. And so I think being able to really create a culture of innovation requires you to really empathize and know who it is you're working with. So that sounds like some kind of hippy trippy, like em <laughs> empathize, let's empathize with people. What does that mean exactly? Like, how does that work? Absolutely. It means that we have to, if we want to be able to create a culture of change where we're asking people to do things differently than the way they were doing so in the past, we have to be able to understand two things. Number one, what scares them? Because if we don't understand what scares people, we can't help them overcome it. And number two, we have to be able to understand what motivates people. Because if we can figure out what gets people excited, what it is that intrinsically is gonna get them to be excited and motivated to wanna be involved in something different than what they're used to, we need to know those two elements. For a lot of the folks that I've talked with, innovation or a growth mindset or however you want to define that, it seems like an obvious path in their work and their lives. So at this podcast, I've, inter I've interviewed some really great people and they seem to know exactly what they're doing. But what do you see as some obstacles that people encounter when they try to improve or change or evolve in the workplace? So first of all, I don't think anybody knows exactly what they're doing. And I think it's <laughs> such a big misconception. And I think, you know, it's one of the things that I think it's so important for us to always share is what's working well and what's not working well and what was that journey like because that journey doesn't end and I think if too many people start looking at people and thinking oh my god they've got it all together and they're doing really well it almost becomes a bit of a hindrance so we can definitely start with that one but I think when we look at what obstacles people face I put it into sort of like three categories so number one is lack of knowledge Right? At the end of the day, we don't know what we don't know. So if we don't always have like exposure to different ideas and different things, we sometimes see other people doing things, but we don't really understand how they got there or how we could get there because maybe that more freedom in your lifestyle looks more appealing or something mm -hmm. along those lines. I also think along with that kind of exposure, I really wish people had more exposure to what was happening in different industries. I think that yeah. kind of lack of knowledge is also really, really important, or not important, but like, getting rid of that lack of knowledge is important because it, when you see what's happening in the industries, you begin to realize it's not just mine. You begin to realize, wow, the whole human race right now is trying to deal with change and everything that's coming our way. So that's kind of the first one. Second one is lack of support. I think a lot of times, um, you know, people will have an idea, they'll kind of be thinking something, but they might say it to the wrong person. Someone just might be like, you know, like, I mean, I don't know, did you ever tell somebody your idea? And they were like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I, but I think it's, it makes a really big difference when someone says, okay, that's what you're thinking. Tell me more. Let me help you flesh out that idea. Uh -huh. And so I think really having some, just, and it doesn't have to be everybody, but you've got to have at least one or two people that you can constantly go to who you know are going to push your thinking, who are going to kind of motivate you a little bit, who are going to not 
be threatened by your idea. So they've got to be people who are like really secure and not going to be haters or kind of put you down. Um, and people who will kind of like get you to question more and kind of show you, yeah, that's actually possible. Because sometimes the ideas that we have, we don't always believe they're possible. But hearing that being reinforced through some people around us that we trust um, can be really, really helpful. And then the last area is sort of just that lack of self-efficacy. Um, if I don't believe that I'm capable of something or a certain task, again, because I haven't had exposure, it's going to be a lot harder for me to execute. Hmm. That's really interesting. You're echoing the comments that were made by guests in previous episodes, like in episode two, Dan Ryder was talking about, you know, needing that, that collaborative um, sounding board, you know, those people who are going to not to be yes men, but people who will provoke you, but also make it a safe space for you to like bounce ideas and to fail and to experiment and stretch. Um, and then in episode three with Rashawn Richards and Stephen Valentine, definitely that idea of like looking into different areas outside of your own expertise and learning from that, right? And even in episode one, my, my brother, the engineering professor Cornell is like, he reads history books yes. to find inspiration, you know, it's not scientists. So yeah. It's really fascinating. That's cool. There's this really great TED talk with Regina Dugan that I like where she asks the question, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? And I show it to my students all the time and it's a really great thought provoking question. Essentially, what she's saying is that the fear of failure holds us back from, you know, making great strides or advancements, you know, at the very least, just living up to our own potential. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's something that, you know, like so many people talk about that we hear all the time. Again, though, I think one of the challenges, it's like easier said than done. And I think that's where a bit of the gap exists right now in what we're doing in that it's just not that simple. It depends so much on like, again, your motivation, your self-efficacy level um, of really who it is that you're speaking to, right? So like there are some people that are gonna be super motivated. They're gonna hear that and be like, yeah, I should totally go pursue my dreams. You know, like I'm not scared of anything at all. And they may have the comfort of having that support network and whatnot. But then you may have had the people who maybe have gone through school not doing so well. You know, and all of a sudden now somebody's telling you, go fail. Yeah, you're going to be great. Go pursue your dreams. And they just don't have that track record to kind of reference as a schema back on of being successful, of, you know, trying something different and having it go well. And so I think it's really important in addition to spreading that idea, which I think is super important, also really recognizing how do we give people strategies for success? Yeah, that's a really great one. In fact, I was going to ask you that. I mean, I think... Um, we need to be realistic about this idea of failure. Um, you know, I read an article that essentially said that it's easy for us to say, don't be afraid to fail, but that comes from people who can afford to fail. You know, like what if your only means of income depended on nailing it every time? You know, or if you're in a high stakes testing situation with a demographic of challenging students or the stock market is scrutinizing your sales for the quarter and you don't, you don't have a job if you fail. So like, how do we manage that? Absolutely, and I think this is sort of like that dichotomy, right, that we're kind of like live in between where it's like people want to do what they're told and just kind of keep things traditional. But one of the quotes that I always go back to, and this is kind of like, you know, how do we build these cultures that really, you know, nurture this is Tony Wagner's. People don't care about what you know, they care about what you can do with what you know. And if you live in a world that is constantly changing and that world expects that you are constantly trying new things and applying your knowledge in different ways, in different industries, with different people, you have to be able to learn those strategies. And I think it really comes down to doing small things. You know, I was at a workshop the other day, um, an ed tech teacher workshop, and Justin Reich was talking to this group of administrators and he told them, you know, we all have these five-year plans, these things that we're going to do. But he's like, what are you gonna do on day three? 
what's that one step that you're going to take? And I think that's why the design thinking process is so powerful, right? Because it teaches you, okay, think about your audience, think about the people around you. What is that small little thing that you might prototype and develop that you can immediately test? Sometimes even so that you may try something new. I mean, as teachers, we do it all the time, right? We try something new, the kids have no idea, right? So a lesson doesn't go according to plan, something yeah. doesn't go the way it's supposed to. They don't know though, you know, but that's our knowledge, right? We've done it in such a safe space and we're constantly trying new things, we're constantly iterating. It may not go exactly the way we imagined in our head, which sometimes is good and sometimes is bad, but nevertheless, we've created a safe space for ourselves within which we can do that. Again, we've got a safe space of people we can bounce ideas off of. Like, hey, this is what I'm thinking of, what do you think? Um, hey, I tried this, this part went well, this one didn't go so well, what do you think might have gone wrong? So I think those things really help. Again, it's those strategies. So how do we create a safe space? What does that look like? Yeah, I think there is three key elements that kind of go into it, or at least like what I found, you know, from people and just myself and whatnot. But I think number one is having the right people around you, like having a mentor. Like today, anyone can be your mentor, you know, with podcasts and with all these different things that we have available to us, you can go online and you can listen to somebody every single day, give you advice, teach you something new. And I think also you want kind of want to have that human mentor, that human like collaboration as well. And I think having somebody that you can go to like, hey, this is what I'm thinking, help me flesh out this idea. You know, because you need somebody who's going to be able to say, hey, you might want to be able to think about doing it this way. Hey, you know, that part's great, but maybe change this part and this part. So having that is going to prevent you from going out and kind of, you know, having to experience it firsthand. I think the second one that goes in is creating a safe space to know how much you can push yourself. So when we're looking at like, you know, changes in a classroom or something like that, you don't want to change up your entire semester, right? Because you're going to get stuck. You want to be like, okay, I'm trying this lesson. Let me try something here and do it in a way like me and you are both teachers. We know this, right? There's so many times we try something new in the classroom. Doesn't go according to plan. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. good, sometimes bad. All the time. But the kids have no idea. You know, so you want to be able to create that kind of safe environment for yourself where you're trying something new. The whole world doesn't have to know that you failed, but you know, okay, that part didn't really go the way I was thinking. How can I iterate? And that's why I think the design thinking process is so important. And then last but not least, and this is a little bit different, I think it's really important to really kind of be metacognitive about how you speak to yourself. I think that one is really, really, really important because we tend to be so harsh on ourselves so self-critical, probably more so than anybody else will be. Um, but I think you have to remember that you are your own best friend and you are your strongest advocate. And so when you catch yourself saying, oh my God, I can't believe I did that, I can't, and you go down that rabbit hole, you gotta say, hey, wait a minute, I'm so proud that I tried something new. And it might not be something that you hear from anyone around you, especially if something didn't go well in a public setting. But I think you have to be able to recognize that, wow, you pushed yourself outside of your comfort zone and that's something to be proud of and you have to be able to speak to yourself in that way and remember that for the next time you try something new. Hmm. It's really interesting. Everything comes back to psychology, right? I know, like right? It's all about thinking and motive. Yeah, it is. I mean, so much of it is like, you know, just how we think um, about things because so much of it is really about the application now, right? It's not that memorization and regurgitation. It's really about applying things, working with people, those kinds of like human skills really that you need. Right. Wow. I feel like I'm my I'm my own worst enemy sometimes because I'll like doubt, and or I'll be afraid to do something. And it's not somebody else from outside telling me that I can't. It's just me, right? I'm the same way. I mean, I always tell people it took me five years to apply to this graduate program because I had convinced myself that I could not write, and I think that's another important thing. Like I always tell people that as well. 
I think once from a young age something is ingrained in you or you develop a belief that you are not good in something, whether it was a bad grade, whether it was a teacher that made a comment, whether it was a parent that said something, an aunt, an uncle, a friend, whatever, I don't know that that ever actually goes away. And that's why I think I've learned that how you talk to yourself is so important. Because no matter how many times I get a good grade, in that moment, I'm like, oh my God, yes, I can write. But I kid you not, an hour later, I'm stressing about my next assignment. And so I think you really have to be conscious and self-aware of how you speak to yourself, because like you said, we, we can be our own worst enemies. If you're always on the lookout for inspiring people and ideas, and you probably are since you're listening to this podcast, then you'll want to check out my monthly newsletter. I share a personal story inspired by my work, curate resources related to innovation and digital literacy, and connect you with thought leaders around the world, all delivered to your email inbox. Sign up on our website at changethenarrative.net. So the first time I heard you speak at a conference, uh, you referenced Thomas Pynchon, who said, if they get you to ask the wrong question, they don't have to worry about the answer. And I love that so much because it applies to everything I did in school and what I see in the business world and, and in politics as well. You know, we're making us ask the wrong question. Um, and so we're not actually addressing the real problem. And so I wonder if like much of our fear of innovation is that we just frame the situation incorrectly. You know, that we don't ask the right question about what we're doing or where we need to go. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite quotes. And I think, you know, there's so many, I think can be applied to every single industry, political, social, economic, I mean, you name it and you can really apply it to there. But I think thinking about some of the things we've just been talking about, I think, you know, what, it goes back to that idea of like how we speak to ourselves. So I think sometimes when you have an idea, the questions we ask ourselves become important and determine sort of the outcome. So if the question that we ask ourselves is about how are we going to go about moving from idea to execution, right? That's the main one we need to answer. The question is not how can I be better than someone else or how can I do what someone else is doing as well and try to copy them. I think the question becomes how do I discover my voice? How do I figure out what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, and how do I contribute to the conversation not try to compete with the people already in it. Well, that's so great. Um, and I'm thinking about your work at USC when you joined the Keck School of Medicine. Um, and your story was that you sort of created your own role there. Yeah. Um, and it was something that didn't exist before and you just happened to be the right person to do this thing. Can you tell me like what that was like and how that started? So I was actually listening to your opening episode where you talked about the recession and the layoffs. And I think for so many of us that had such a huge impact in our career and what, and I think it really scared us into thinking like, wow, okay, what else am I going to be doing? Because I never know like the secure, the sort right. of job, the profession that I entered that you talk about doesn't exist anymore. And so one of the things that I realized, and again, it's that, you know, Tony Wagner kind of piece, you know, like, and Seth Godin as well. I really have to attribute a lot of what I was able to do to his thinking in getting me to kind of recognize where are there gaps? that can become opportunities for design. So like, what are you really good at that you can offer someone? And that kind of led from one thing to another. But I think what that really did was it really made me think about what am I good at? And I was really, really, really good at strategy. And I was really good at lesson design um, and integrating technology into that. And so being able to kind of do that kind of opened up my world and like how I was using technology, projects I was working on. And it's one of those things that I think is like a catch 22. Like, 
we always talk about that idea, right? Like follow what you love, like do things that you're excited about. Um, and then, you know, I always say like when you do what you love, you meet great people along the way. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of opens up new opportunities, but it's something that you can't believe until you experience it and you don't experience it until you believe it. So you're kind of like stuck. So you've got to right. at some point take the leap, you know? Um, but yeah, it just came about because, you know, here was my sister working on a project and she wasn't being able to take advantage of everything to the full um, capacity and we just started working together, you know, and it was like one thing led to another. And so I always say like, you know, follow projects that inspire you, but at the same time have the patience, you know, because that patience is critical. We're so used to getting that immediate feedback. I turn in my paper, I get a grade. I do this, I get a response. Like I turn on the TV, this happens. We're so used to that immediate feedback. And I think one of the things about crafting something that is different is it takes time. Nothing great, right? They always say it was like built overnight. And it takes time because you're not getting any feedback sometimes. You know, you can be putting out an article and it's not getting any responses. You can be posting online and it's not getting the response that you want. You can be creating podcasts, maybe you're not getting the response <laughs> that you want. There's all this exactly. work that we're doing <laughs> that maybe doesn't immediately get the response. But you know what I've realized is there are way more silent people listening than active. Hmm. That's true, right? Yeah. You know how on Twitter there. they always talk about lurkers? Yeah. It, I, it, I feel like it exists everywhere. Yeah, like there so. are way more people lurking and listening probably because they're trying to figure out their own voice as well, right? Yeah. Um, and so... Like they don't have anything to contribute. Like I'm not good enough to exactly. respond or reply or post my own stuff. Yeah. I know friends that started with that mindset and now they've got thousands of followers because they have great content to share. Yeah, so we all grow in different ways, but yeah. I think sometimes we think no one's listening, but I think never underestimate who's listening to you. So what she's saying is we see you out there. <laughs> <laughs> and that they see you or they hear you. <laughs> So what's some practical advice you would give to folks? Like, how do you get over that fear of failure? Um, I think it's so important to constantly live in a cycle of reflection because it's really where you begin to see patterns of like, oh my God, I am really mean to myself here. Like when I try something new, I experience this kind of anxiety. There's all these different things that you just learn about yourself. And I think you have to be so self-aware and you have to understand yourself on such a deep level so that when you go to do something new, you can talk to yourself in the right way. You know how to mentally prep yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that is just critical. Yeah, you're echoing what Steve Valentine was saying in episode uh, three of the of the series is like he posts something daily as a blog that he posts daily. And it's not a journal, it's like not this huge novel, but it helps his thought process too. Um, So tell me some projects that you're working on right now that you're really excited about, Saba. Some projects that I'm working on, well right now I'm currently working on my dissertation. I'm really excited. I I feel like I've been talking about design thinking for so long, so I'm excited to really kind of add a bit of research alongside why this is such an effective practice. And I am going to be doing a promising practice um, looking at Design 39, which is a school in San Diego, California, which um, integrates design thinking across their curriculum. And I'm looking at the age of automation and why design thinking is important for K-12 students to learn. And so really excited about that work there. Um, And yeah, that's pretty much taking up all of my time. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Congratulations. I can't wait to see your results. And you were even talking about the written essay, the written paper versus something else. Yes, absolutely. So one of the driving motivations to go back to school was I'm constantly talking about what students should be doing, what schools should be doing that you kind of, you know, you kind of 
you know, there's a bit of a thing there. Like, am I really advocating for the right thing? So I was really curious, you know, just along those empathy lines, what is it like to be a student today? And I can tell you it is the most unhuman experience on the planet. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really, I mean, it's very difficult to go from being a human being in the real world to having to be a human being in a school environment. And I love my program to bits and pieces. It's fantastic, but it really, really makes me self-aware of like, wow, at this age, if I'm struggling, what is it like for a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, or a 15-year-old? So I'm trying to really model a lot of what I say. And one of the things that I realized is, you know, I don't really meet a lot of people and I definitely am not a person, I don't know if you are, who sits around and reads dissertations all day long. <laughs> I'm watching not YouTube exactly. videos, I'm right. listening to podcasts, I'm reading blogs, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. I'm, that's not where you're going to find a dissertation. Right. And so one of the things I'm excited to do is turn my dissertation into a documentary and really kind of share the story of the work that I'm doing in a multimedia format because I know my audience, right? Like, and I think that's important. Like, who are you speaking to? Where do you want to affect change? Who are you trying to get your message across to? and what medium is the best one to reach it. You know, I think there, there's an audience for dissertations, you know, but that's not my audience. And so I'm really excited to kind of like model a lot of what I've been talking about and hopefully be an example to a lot of other people, um, especially in higher education, you know, that hey, there's a lot more you can do beyond just a written piece of paper. That's amazing, that's what I say to my students all the time. It's like you're putting in all this blood, sweat and tears and energy into your research topic or your assignment you're doing for class. Why throw it in the trash when you're done? Why not have something that's going to be useful that people are actually going to see so you can actually affect change? Yeah. Yeah, that's so important to me. Wow, that's great. And I can't think of the last time I wrote a five-paragraph essay. I know, right? <laughs> or read one you know, for pleasure. <laughs> not for grading, but for pleasure, right? Yeah, um, and I think, you know, the, one of the things that I always tell people is like, you know, like LinkedIn, for example. You know, it's it's like a it's like a living resume almost. Mm -hmm. You know, not to mention is it's not only a living resume, it's an entire <coughs> network of professionals. It's where everybody is. And it's you know, the fact that they've got you can add video alongside your experiences. You can add, you know, a paper or a PDF or a conference presentation. So I think the more ways we get thinking about how do we share our work, how do we share who we are, the more interesting people will meet and end up in places that make us happier. And it's not just philosophical, I mean, it's practical. I mean, if you're trying to fund a, a startup business, if you're trying to sell a product, if you're trying to, you know, get a grant, you know, you don't make a diorama. <laughs> yeah. When was the last time you went to city council with a diorama? Or I'm going to Boeing and I'm going to give them a diorama and a poster on paper. They you know, laugh you out of the place, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? You're going to make this <laughs> slick video. You're going to have a social media campaign. You're going to have followers who come along with you as part Absolutely. of your part of your bargain when you get hired like I'm this is part of the package I bring this to the table and so I wonder why we don't do that so much in school yep and I think you know it really comes down to the importance of sharing stories I think more and more people have to share their stories of how they got to where they were what the journey was like and be able to alongside that teach other people here are strategies for success that you can apply because you can't just copy someone's formula you know, I always tell people that like, I think, you know, I mean, everybody has a different tool. You gotta figure out what's right for you. For me, it was video. You know, I remember one of my jobs that I got hired at, the video literally changed the interview into a conversation because they had seen so much of me that there were all these questions well, you didn't really need to ask anymore. And so it became such a great conversation. And so there's just so many ways to put yourself out there to get exposure. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't know what you don't know. And so, you know, how do we expose more people to what's possible? And I think that's where, you know, schools play such a critical role. Hmm. That's really great. I like the idea of, you were just saying about 
you could start the conversation before you come to class. Yeah. Right. You can use these tools to extend the learning, to amplify it, to ask the questions before, or to pose the ideas and have people thinking about it before they show up face to face. And then you're just at a much higher level when you do arrive. This has been really great, Saba. So where can uh, folks, now that they're interested in what you're doing and your work, and I'm really, really excited about your documentary project and where you're headed, where can people connect with you and find out more about your work? Yeah, so I'm Ask Miss Q, A-S-K-M-S-Q, across all social media platforms. Um, LinkedIn's one of my favorites to connect on with people, or you can go to my website, askmissq.com. That's awesome. Great. Well, Saba, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fun and energetic and thought-provoking as usual. You are totally welcome. I'm excited for you, excited for your podcast, and excited to see where all this goes. Great. Thanks, and good luck with the dissertation. Thank you. I've got links to Saba's social media channels and photos of my visit to the National Portrait Gallery on our website, changethenarrative.net. Season one of Change the Narrative is almost over. Don't miss the last episode of the season where I'll look back on what I learned about producing this podcast and share some behind the scenes secrets and a few other surprises. If you like our podcast, rate us and write us a review. It helps people find us. 